Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Friday, October 29th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, digging up the origins of some of the most popular Halloween memes, from spooky, scary skeletons to the dancing pumpkin man, and also touching on the Disney Channel's 1980s answer to MTV. Plus, how times of disease have historically led to an uptick in vampire fear and folklore. And on a more optimistic note, hopefully meaning we'll have one less thing to fear in the future, phase one vaccine trials for the most aggressive type of breast cancer have just begun. Here are some cool things from the news today. As Halloween celebrations begin in earnest this weekend, you've probably come across what has now become a pretty classic gif, the black-and-white cartoon of dancing skeletons in a graveyard. Or maybe you've heard the song that sometimes goes with it, or one of countless remixes, the spooky, scary skeleton song. Here's a popular remix to jog your memory. Now, the original version of the song is a bit more subdued, and listening to it back-to-back with that remix, it almost sounds like slowed down. Here's a listen. Spooky, scary skeletons and shivers down your spine. Shrieking skulls will shock your soul, seal your doom tonight. When variations on that song started making the rounds online every October a few years back and the gif started circulating all over as well, I was struck by a strong feeling of deja vu. I knew those skeletons, but I wasn't sure what from. And eventually, it hit me. I was pretty sure that they were from a VHS tape we had growing up that was just called Pop and Rock. Not the easiest thing to Google. But the tape, it turns out, was one volume of five released as compilation tapes by Disney in the mid-80s. Each tape was themed. There was Pop and Rock, as well as Golden Oldies, Love Songs, and Groovin' for a 60s Afternoon. And all of the tapes consisted of a series of music videos that had originally aired on the Disney Channel as filler material back before the channel had commercials. The music videos themselves simply paired popular songs with archival animations from Disney. The name of the series? DTV. It was Disney's answer to MTV. I found a full-length upload of DTV's Pop and Rock on YouTube, and sure enough, there were the skeletons from the GIF, bopping and tumbling around in the animated cemetery. But they weren't dancing along to a scary Halloween song. They were roughly edited into a montage of Donald Ducks and Jiminy Crickets set to Martha and the Mandela's Dancing in the Street. Clearly, this is not where the skeletons originally came from. Apart from making hardly any sense in that edit, the whole point of DTV was that it was using vintage animations from the studio's archive. So the bouncing skeletons actually date back over half a century earlier to a similar project from Disney in the 20s and 30s called Silly Symphonies. It was a series of 75 musical animations that stood independently from one another and from other Disney stories, although popular characters occasionally appeared, and in fact, Donald Duck made his debut in a Silly Symphony. 
The Silly Symphonies served as a kind of testing ground for new animation techniques within Disney, and as such, ended up being pretty innovative. Seven of them even won Oscars. The Skeleton Dance, as it is officially known, was the very first Silly Symphony. The animation was primarily done by good ol' Ub Iwerks in just six weeks, and if you watch the whole thing, link in the show notes, it truly is a masterpiece of animation. I mean, you can tell how Iwerks and his team were really just flexing their muscles and seeing what they could do. Using skeletons, they got a lot of anatomical practice for future human characters, as well as creativity for how to move the disparate bones around. Its clear skill and innovation led to it being voted number 18 by animation animators on a list of the top 50 animations of all time back in 1994. And the immediate reception in 1929 in the US was similarly positive, also remarking on how funny the scenes are. And it was this very first installment in Silly Symphonies that bagged Disney a deal for exclusive distribution of the series through Columbia Pictures, because the president of the studio loved the skeleton dance so much. But over in Denmark, it was apparently banned in 1931 because it was too macabre, which honestly is kind of fair. If you remember that the skeletons are really deceased humans, and then watch some of the ways that these ones break apart and combine together in weird monster shapes or use one another as instruments, I mean, I can see how a country thinks it's a little too much for kids. Nonetheless, the skeleton dance was remastered in 1937 in Technicolor with tons more details and more skeletons, now with sousaphones. The music for the skeleton dance was written by Carl Stalling, who basically pitched the idea of Silly Symphony to Walt Disney while they were working on the very first Mickey Mouse shorts, so go Stalling. But here's the thing. Despite the top video on YouTube when you search for Spooky Scary Skeletons being the song that I played a moment ago set to the Silly Symphony's Skeleton Dance, and that video having 25 million views, and there being a bunch of others that use that same song and the 1937 remaster of the cartoon, despite all of that, neither the 1929 original animation nor the 1937 remaster used the song Spooky Scary Skeletons. That song wasn't written until 1996 by Los Angeles songwriter, musician, and producer Andrew Gold. Gold had a long and influential career in the soft rock genre, most notably writing the song Thank You For Being A Friend, which later became the theme song to the Golden Girls. But in 1996, Gold teamed up with musician John Waite to produce a children's novelty album called Halloween Howls, featuring spooky scary skeletons. It's Gold's version that I played at the top, as well as his Undead Tombstone remix, which seems to get shared even more than the original these days. Now, I'm not sure when Gold's spooky scary skeletons started erroneously being put to the skeleton dance animation. The version of the cartoon with spooky scary skeletons has 4 million more views than the original skeleton dance on Disney's channel with the correct track. And that correct track is just some instrumental music, no lyrics or anything. The music matches the animation way better than Spooky Scary Skeletons does, but honestly, this mix-up fooled me for a few years. I just never questioned it, and I don't think I'm alone. Just today, Norwegian musician Leo Moriccioli posted a metal cover of the Spooky Scary Skeletons song that includes a cool live-action recreation of the dancing skeletons from the skeleton dance. Maybe he too thought that that animation is where the song originated from, or maybe he just knows it's a really popular gif that would be fun to recreate. 
either way, his cover is pretty awesome. Here's a clip. Even though it's often re-edited with a different, very good song, it's still cool that over a century later, the Skeleton Dance cartoon lives on. Even if more people are familiar with it as a standalone gif, or the sometimes misattributed song and remixes of that. But you know, like, just think, what if a hundred years from now, someone else is sharing an oral history of the David S. Pumpkin sketch? Or the gif of the guy dancing around in the black morph suit in a pumpkin mask? Which, by the way, just briefly, in case you've never heard the history of that iconic moment, first, if you've only ever seen the GIF and not the original video, you should know that it is set to the Ghostbusters theme song, which is just excellent. So in 2006, KXVO-TV anchor Matt Geiler needed to fill some airtime on the 10 o'clock news. KXVO is Omaha, Nebraska's CW affiliate. Geiler told WNYC in 2014, quote, I use the term newscast lightly because it was more of an entertainment pop culture thing. And continuing from WNYC, Guyler remembers the station's news director telling him, We only need a minute and a half of news up front, and then you can do whatever you want. I don't care. End quote. Geiler and his team pitched a bunch of ideas for that night, but somehow, likely because of the low budget required, his idea to, quote, put on a unitard and a pumpkin head and dance at people's graves, end quote, is the one that stuck. And while it was enough of a local hit for the team to repeat the gag that year for Christmas, on YouTube it only garnered a few hundred views for the first three years that it was up on the site. Then suddenly, in 2009, it exploded and quickly became the meme that we know today. So the kids in the 1930s had award-winning animated skeletons dancing in a graveyard, and we have the Dancing Pumpkin Man from KXVO's 10 o'clock news on a green screen. But honestly... I'm not too upset about it. Well, it is Halloween weekend, so with all that talk about dancing skeletons and pumpkin men in graveyards, let's move on to another classic cemetery lurker, the vampire. Stanley Stepanik, professor of Slavic studies at the University of Virginia, wrote in the conversation earlier this month, quote, The first known reference to vampires appeared in written form in Old Russian in A.D. 1047, soon after Orthodox Christianity moved into Eastern Europe. The term for vampire was upir, which has uncertain origins, but its possible literal meaning was the thing at the feast or sacrifice, referring to a potentially dangerous spiritual entity that people believed could appear at rituals for the dead. It was a euphemism used to avoid speaking the creature's name, and unfortunately, historians may never learn its real name or even when beliefs about it surfaced, end quote. According to Stepanik, this archetype from folklore served the same purpose as most other folkloric figures and stories, to explain the, at the time, unexplainable, or to serve as scapegoats for occurrences that were too dire to make sense of. A big one of those around the time that vampire folklore was most prevalent? Disease. 
And in a way, I think we can relate to this now. You know, so much about the pandemic has been tough to process emotionally. Most of us may not have had a kind of boogeyman that we seriously blame it on, but plenty of people, through their fear and anxiety, are quick to place the blame on anyone they can. And that's not really so different from before. In another era, some people's calls to arrest Dr. Fauci for muzzling and poisoning their kids would have been replaced by accusations of him being a vampire and trying to hunt him down and kill him in his devilish ways. That's the scapegoat side of things, but Stepanek points out how people suffering from diseases were sometimes accused of being vampires, either in life or in death due to some of the, at the time, seemingly odd or confusing symptoms. Like, for example, rabies. Quoting Stepanek, Its name comes from a Latin term for madness. It's one of the oldest recognized diseases on the planet, transmissible from animals to humans and primarily spread through biting, an obvious reference to a classic vampire trait. There are other curious connections. One central symptom of the disease is hydrophobia, a fear of water. Painful muscle contractions in the esophagus lead rabies victims to avoid eating and drinking or even swallowing their own saliva, which eventually causes foaming at the mouth. In some folklore, vampires cannot cross running water without being carried or assisted in some way as an extension of this symptom. Furthermore, rabies can lead to a fear of light, altered sleep patterns, and increased aggression, elements of how vampires are described in a variety of folktales." Another possible disease connection is one called pellagra, which is caused by a dietary deficiency of vitamin B3 or tryptophan. And quoting again, Often, pellagra is brought on by diets high in corn products and alcohol. After Europeans landed in the Americas, they transported corn back to Europe, but they ignored a key step in preparing corn washing it, often using lime, a process called nixtamalization that can reduce the risk of pellagra. Pellagra causes the classic four Ds, dermatitis, diarrhea, dementia, and death. Some sufferers also experience high sensitivity to sunlight, described in some depictions of vampires, which leads to corpse-like skin, end quote. Pellagra, though, as indicated by that corn connection, didn't exist as a disease in Eastern Europe until many centuries after vampire legends had already abounded. But while vampire legends do go back almost a millennium, the real peak of mania surrounding vampires was the mid-1700s, as diseases like pellagra and many others were spreading throughout Europe. And here, a certain paranoia emerged that some of the dead and buried were in fact vampires who emerged from the graveyards at night. So some people began conducting so-called vampire burials, in which they'd conduct various methods for killing the vampire for good, like driving a stake through the corpse's heart or covering it in garlic. As JSTOR Daily explains, quote, Most likely, the vampire myth stemmed from ignorance regarding decomposition. A few feet underground is significantly cooler than the air, slowing decomposition. Blood coagulates after death, but can be liquid for a time in the airless environment of a grave. A brown fluid typically seeps from the nose and the mouth. Facial hair hasn't grown, but appears longer as skin retracts. As for the groaning, air can escape through the throat if pressure is applied to the body, as in a stake through the heart. End quote. 
And all of that became a bit of a spiral because soldiers from Western Europe would see all of those desecrated graves from vampire burials and then go back home and spread stories about vampires, which could have led to people messing with graves there too. And as Stepanek points out, this great vampire epidemic of the 18th century was also happening at a time when Eastern Europe was undergoing a great deal of instability politically, religiously, and socially, all of which can combine to create an environment of paranoia, unease, blame, and confusion, none of which I really need to explain to any of you. And we may not be imagining there are vampires in our midst at the moment, but every other part of this history is perhaps a little too relatable. Ending today with something that is decidedly not scary, but instead very hopeful. Phase 1 trials have just begun for triple negative breast cancer, the most aggressive form of the cancer. And if all goes well, the vaccine could be used both as a booster for survivors as well as a preventative for those who are at high genetic risk. Quoting Gizmodo, the vaccine is intended to stop triple-negative breast cancer, a form of cancer where the tumor has few or no receptors for estrogen, progesterone, and human epidermal growth factor receptor 2, or HER2. Though only about 10-15% to of breast cancers are triple-negative, these tumors are harder to treat due to the lack of receptors that current treatments can target. They're also faster-growing and more likely to spread elsewhere in the body. The five-year survival rate of a triple-negative cancer varies, but is only around 12% for cancers that have spread far across the body. The principle behind the vaccine relies on training the immune system to target a certain protein called A-lactalbumin. This protein is expressed by breast cells when a person is producing breast milk. The majority of triple-negative tumors also produce A-lactalbumin, however, making the protein a sort of homing beacon for the immune system to go after wayward tumor cells while leaving healthy breast tissue alone. Because of the way the vaccine works, it would be most suited for women in their post-childbearing premenopausal years when lactation is readily avoidable and risk for developing breast cancer is high, as the scientists wrote in the previous research, end quote. The phase one trial participants are all people who have survived triple negative breast cancer but remain at high risk for a recurrence, despite currently being tumor-free. G. Thomas Budd from the Cleveland Clinic, where the trial is being run, said in a statement, quote, Long term, we're hoping that this can be a true preventative vaccine that would be administered to healthy women to prevent them from developing triple negative breast cancer, the form of breast cancer for which we have the least effective treatments, end quote. Which is just kind of incredible to think about. I mean, cancer absolutely sucks. And hearing that we may be on the verge not just of better treatments for some of the most aggressive forms, but ways to prevent people from ever getting it, I mean, that is a pretty miraculous thing. To think that we have gone from having to explain away diseases with supernatural explanations to actually being able to cure and prevent some of them just makes you marvel at how far we have come. And for me personally, at least, being very grateful for science. All right, well, that is it from me for this week. If you are celebrating Halloween this weekend, I hope you stay safe and have a frightfully good time. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday.